The second book that I wrote was uh, called The Devil's Voice. This is a uh, story that actually started when I was in college. So the, the book takes place in the ni- early 1980s, and it follows a young man who's going to college, and he's working in a uh, state hospital for developmentally disabled. So it's a full spectrum of clients, from severely developmentally disabled to severely schizophrenic and everything in between. I'm a student assistant, don't know anything about how to take care of, you know, anybody in this place. And within the first couple days, they throw me in a group room all by myself. I have no idea what I'm supposed to do, so I just let the guys do whatever they wanted to do. There was one guy in particular that really stood out amongst them all. He looked like the devil, and he escapes from the facility. Hi, this is Stephanie Fallon. And this is Tony Russo. And you're listening to another episode of So What's Your Story? A podcast in which we talk to authors and writers about their writing, their stories behind the story, their writing process, and any other sort of miscellaneous writing stuff that we want to talk about. Today on the podcast, we have novelist Chris Conway. Although he was born in Connecticut, he grew up in Southern California and graduated from California State Long Beach. Chris spent his career in business, owning and operating several manufacturing operations, but writing was always a constant hobby. His first manuscript was a nonfiction account of several World War II soldiers, which involved several years of research and interviews. His second novel, The Devil's Voice, was a thriller, and earlier this month, he published his third novel, a historical fiction work titled The Glove Slinger. It tells the story of Sam Grady, a golden glove boxer who enlists in the service as a World War II was looming on the nation's horizon. So welcome to the podcast, Chris. Thank you. I'm glad to be here. Thank you for having me. Well, we're glad to have you here, too. Um, One of the things why I was really excited to pull you on to the podcast was um, I I love uh, historical nonfiction. To me, it kind of reminds me of what I like to do as creative nonfiction, but would you tell us a little bit about how you came to the Glove Slinger? How how Sam? How did you find Sam Grady? Well, it started eight years ago, sitting around a campfire. It was a Boy Scout Cub Scout event on uh, Camp Pendleton in Southern California, where Marines train. They have a, a Boy Scout camp there, so we were camping, and a guy was telling a story about his uncle Hank. He was a World War II veteran, up for the Medal of Honor. And he was a Golden Gloves boxing champion. So I was very intrigued sure. hearing the guy's yeah. story. Yeah. So my, my first thought was, you know, the critic in me wanted to know how true was the story. <laughs> sure, sure. Because everybody likes to elaborate. Right. So I asked if I could do some research and, you know, lo and behold, the story padded out. Really? So yes, Hank, Hank Medal of Honor, a whole, he whole didn't nine win, years. He did not, did not win the Medal of Honor. Oh, he was. Oh. He was up for it. Up for it. Gotcha. Okay. Gotcha. <laughs> There are, it never gets old, the stories about the guys in World War II, because it's just so, I mean, war stories in general are, are, compo- are as compelling as they often are horrifying. But there's something particular about World War II. There's, it's, it's the blackest, whitest war we've ever had, right? It's, I mean, it's probably an accident of history, but we were, we were on, we were on the right side of it. Uh, but also, it, it was just, mechanized warfare was just coming into play and many of the people who were born who were who were fighting like hadn't seen cars before i mean they were living the they were ushering in the modern age as they were putting their lives on the line as 18 year olds from who had never been abroad um and that's what i think makes their stories so so compelling 
Yeah. Um, I, I agree 100%. It's, uh, they call it the greatest generation. I, I, I would tend to agree with that. A lot of these men were Depression-era men, obviously. The, uh, when the Army was first formed, in ni- it was 1940, so it was prior to the actual involvement in World War II, uh, we had virtually no standing Army. And we started to build an Army in 1940. And the men that were originally drafted into the Army were anywhere from 22 to 28 years old, yeah. primarily. And at, as the war got in, into progress, then they dropped the age to 18. And by the end of the war, all that was left were 18-year-old, 19-year-olds, or 35 or <laughs> old. Right. And all those guys in the middle that had been in, in, in the war early on were either wounded and back at home, they were wounded recovering in a hospital, or they were dead. Wow. And what, where, did you, where do you start research on a regular, you know, what are they, dog, dog faces? Jarheads. <laughs> uh, they were just GIs. GIs. So yeah, jar, jarheads are Marines. Yes. Right, well, he was at Camp Pendleton, so I was confused. Yeah. Oh, gotcha. No, Sam Green. <laughs> Sam Green was in the Army. He was okay. in the Army. Gotcha, yeah. yeah. So how did, how did, um, how how'd did you hunt them down? How'd you go for him? How did you, like, do you, I mean, obviously you interviewed the family in... Well, you started out, uh, I started out with the family. And since I had a, uh, you know, a friend, a close friend who was a, a living relative, he was uh, a nephew of the man I followed, um, I was able to get names of all, you know, all the living relatives. So I was able to talk to a uh, sister who was still alive, uh, his wife, who he had just married before he deployed to combat, and his daughter, who, he, who was born while he was overseas, so I was able to interview those three people. And then there was other you know, cousins and whoever else that had heard stories or had something to add to the, what I was trying to do. And how about the practical, what it's like to be in the Army? Were, were you in the Army yourself? Do you, so did, did you do research about Army life independent of that? Yes, I, well, yes, I, I was not in the Army, so uh, I had to do a lot of research as to what it was like. And, of course, today's Army is nothing like the Army it was back right, then. Yeah. So, once, uh, once Sam was, you know, when he joined the Army, he joined the National Guard. He didn't join the active Army. He joined his local National Guard unit in 1940 in upstate New York. Uh, it was the 27th Infantry Division. So I, I, what I did is I followed what those guys did prior to the war. Right. So I follow the 27th Division. They had maneuvers that they were part of, part of just their basic training that National Guardsmen did. And then part of that mobilization of 1940 that I had mentioned earlier, they were federalized into the regular army, and then they were shipped to a base in Alabama. They were supposed to be in the army for one year, but eight months in, they were told there's a national emergency, although there wasn't one at the time, and we hadn't been at war yet. Right. And they were extended for six months. So now there was a lot of there was a lot of uh, disgruntled citizen soldiers that wanted to go back over to their family. Right, yeah. So uh, it's very interesting when you start looking at the history of this because this is leading up to the war. Our government knew we were going to war. Right. You know, FDR was already sending supplies to England. He, and there was a lot of secret packs were taking place, but the, the soldiers didn't know. They still didn't think they were going to war. These guys thought they were going to be going home. Right. And then Pearl Harbor happens, and part of that extension of six months was – Oh, and if we happen to go to war, you're in it for the duration. Yeah. So these guys who never thought they were going to war when they signed up as National Guardsmen were now in, in the regular army for the duration of the war. And that meant either the war ended and you'd survived it or 
you were killed in combat. That's crazy. That is crazy. Because they didn't rotate them out after. No, there was no rotating out of a yeah. World War II soldier. And there's there's stories of guys that served from, we'll say, you know, 1942 in North Africa that ended the war in 1945. Wow. So yeah. You know, three years of combat. I have I, I have a little bit of trivia that I always like to tell when when I talk about things like this. There's a movie called Buck Privates. It's an Abbott and Costello movie. Um, I claim, and I haven't been able to refute the claim, but I'm not a I'm not a film historian. I claim that's the only pre World War II propaganda film because that came out in 1940 and it was all about the draft and what to do if you were drafted. And this is a fun thing. Mm-hmm. And these are wacky guys, and they weren't getting ready to go to war. They were just being drafted and dealing with what it's like to be drafted. And it came out, as I said, so it was filmed in, in the late 30s or early 40s, and it came out in 1940, and we weren't at war yet. And it, everybody thinks it's a war film, but it's not because it's – Right. Yeah. There, there's a whole culture of – the this whole pre-war culture is it, – it's just fascinating because they say they're, they're, they think they're essentially at you know the world's worst summer camp, and then they really go to the world's worst summer camp. Yes, and that, that is exactly right. And that's and when I did the research on it, and I, I saw what these guys did and the training that they went through. And, and at one point, there was so much disgruntled soldiers in the ranks that the, the government actually released thousands and thousands of men, and it was basically because of hardship at home. Right. And, you know, the division that he originally joined, the 27th Division, they start out with about 14,000 men. At least three to 4,000 men were sent home. And then they, the draft ends up happening, and right. they fill the ranks with drafted soldiers. So the once all-New York division becomes a, a division that encompassed the entire country. And now, do you deal? I'm sorry, I didn't. I didn't get the book. And had did you deal with the the cultural clashes? Not clashes, but like so. It was an all New York division until they added guys from Alabama and from Oklahoma and things like that. And that kind of became a staple of the army, where people who would could live and die and never meet anybody from Oklahoma or from New York City are now bunking with them. Uh, no, I really didn't uh, get into that. Uh, probably the the. Most amount of diversity that uh, my character saw was after Pearl Harbor was attacked, they were the first division that was deployed overseas, and it happened to be to go to Hawaii. Oh, wow. So the 27th Division ships first to California, and then from California they shipped to Hawaii, and they were destined to go to the Philippines, but the Philippines fell before. So they ended up becoming a division that protected the outer islands is what they called them. Mm-hmm. So at that point now, the, the, all these guys were now introduced to you know, men from various parts of the country and local Hawaiians, the natives. That, so it was, a, it was a bit of a culture shock. Yeah, I mean, because he's from central New York? Yeah, central New York. He was from Elmira. Yep. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, I have a question. So um, as an author... Uh, you're telling this account of this guy who really lived and breathed and boxed and, you know, that sort of stuff. But you also made a choice as an author to interject a few fiction, fictional components to his story. And um, one of the first things I, I encountered right as I'm, you know, right off the bat as I'm reading The Glove Slinger is there is this mob connection that kind of comes at him. So I was just wondering, like, um, how do you make that choice as an author? And was it, what was it like that, you know, mob and world war two, like, you know, what, what, how did that decision come about for you? Well, I was, when I looked at the writing, the, the fictional account of this character and 
again, you could only piece together so much of a person's life right. because it took place in the 1940s. Most of the people are not alive, and mm-hmm. the records were not as good as they are today. So I, I wanted to interject a subplot that added a little bit of intrigue to the story. And you know, we all know how you know organized crime was prolific at that time, and you know, boxing matches were fixed from as the Kids fighting on the street were being bet on, and right. fights were being fixed all the way up to the professional ranks. So I just got the idea that these guys were going to try to fix this fight, and of course my guy would never take the fall. So he, they create some pretty potent enemies, and right away they right uh, away get tra- on you know it becomes tragic. There's a revenge plot, and that helps. I also wanted to also to formulate a reason as to why you know why was he so eager to get out of. Elmira and join the army. Sure, pa- patriotism plays a role, but you got to think. Okay, what else? What could be driving him out of town? So that's why I created that whole scenario. Sure, and it's interesting because you have to you have to keep those those threads because he's going. You know, in the in the best case scenario of the book, he's going back to Elmira. So you have to have that in the back of your head, like that you have to develop this resolution as you're going along. Mm-hmm. Do you find that it's easier? Do you to take notes or to work from notes, or do you just kind of try to push your way through and keep all the threads together in your head? How do you how do you keep the different the multiple narratives in, in track track? Well, I, I'm I'm not when I write, I'm not a person that takes notes. I'm not a, a note taker per se. And when I get started on a theme, uh-huh. you know, I'll run with that theme and right. I'll write, and then I'll stop, and then I'll come back to it. And then I'll read what I've written. I mean, I, I could. I usually take a break or something. I'll come back and, and I'll read what I've written. And then I'll, ah, then I start adding more and I start adding more. And then, and then another thing comes into my head. Oh, what if we have the guys go up to Syracuse and take care of these mob guys? Right. So I, then I, that comes part of the plot of the story. And so I'm, it's, a, it's an always evolving process. But I don't take notes and it's not like I, I've got the whole story laid out in my head. I knew how it was going to end. Right. Yeah, sure. <laughs> I knew how I was going to start it, and I knew how I was going to end it. <laughs> and so and I had just... a lot of pieces because I was following a real life. So I, right. So the narrative kind of follows along with what he did. So Golden Gloves boxing champion, joins the Army, becomes an Army boxer. Uh, one of the things I, I did want to say about the, the real man, which is also part of the story, was he, at 18 years old, he wins that welterweight title right. central new york title and he goes to fight in the tournament of champions in new york city and he makes it the second round and he gets defeated in the second round i have it that the mob fixes the fight in reality he got beat on points right well as far as we know as far as we know as far as we know <laughs> i couldn't find that much in my research i got the newspaper articles right so the following year now he's in the army and he's boxing for the 27th Infantry Division while he's stationed in Alabama. Right. He fights in the southeastern tournament, which is the same is the equivalent of the Syracuse tournament. He wins as a he's now a middleweight. He matures over one right. year, so he's now a middleweight, which means he's 160 to 165 pounds. And he wins that tournament, so he goes back to New York City. So the guy wins two tournaments, different parts of the country in different weight classes. And he fights into the finals in New York City, and he gets defeated by points again. Wow! In the finals of the tournament of champions. But that's a that's a serious accomplishment. To, it is. It's to a, win it's, it, I don't know if there's any other. I didn't do enough research to see if there's other boxers that could claim that. But there, I'm sure there are. But when you think about well, that, there's probably not very many that. Especially born, moving around like that in the 40s. In the 40s, where boxing was, as I read from my little intro there, 
it, it was an obsession in America. Right. It, you would not find anybody who didn't follow the boxing game. I mean, it, I'm trying to think of the movie that Russell Crowe was in. Um, the Cinderella Man. Cinderella Man. Thank you very much. That was, uh, he was a fighter that fought in, in the 30s. Mm-hmm. You know, his fights were fixed, which gave me the kind of idea of fight fixing. Right. And I mean, everybody knew that man no matter where he went. He didn't make a lot of money as a fighter, but everybody knew where he went. And then when Max Bear fights Joe Lewis, that was the biggest sporting event in America. Right. Yeah. Bar none at that time. Now, you mentioned um, one of the people that Sam Grady um, meets kind of early on when he's when he goes to that first welterweight tournament is Sugar Ray. Is that the Sugar Ray that he meets? Yes, it is. So Sugar Ray Robinson, who some claim is the best fighter ever, pound for pound, they call him the best fighter ever. Sugar Ray, way, Sugar Ray won the lightweight title in 1940. Oh, he knocked cool. out every opponent. And then later in the book, I don't want to ruin it for you. I haven't read to that point. No, I'm, I'm not that far, but you can... Spoilers. Spoiler alert. I'll just Spoiler plug my ears. Spoiler alert. I'm plugging my ears. <laughs> right. I have uh, Sam fight Sugar Ray in an exhibition match. Now, uh, Sugar Ray Robinson was in the Army, and part of what he was doing when he was in the Army was he was boxing in exhibition tournaments on Army bases. Family lore says that Hank Heppy did fight Sugar Ray, although I could never find it in any anywhere could I verify that. So I could never use it in a nonfiction book, but I certainly used it in my fiction. Uh, well, I, I don't blame you at all. Um, now, this is your third book? Third book. Yep. And so what's the difference between the process when you're getting ready to do your first one and when you're getting ready to do your third? Well, the first book was the, the nonfiction where I actually followed four different soldiers. So after I, I heard the Hank Heppy story that night, mm-hmm. another man uh, talked about his grandfather who also served in World War II. And again, his story was rather intriguing, so I asked him if I could research that story also. So those two stories were part of the first manuscript. And then, as coincidence would have it, I met another person whose father and uncle served together. They met in the Army, uh, became best friends. The one man marries the sister of the other man. Right, and yeah. So there's a, it was a great connect, it was a great family story. And one of those gentlemen was still alive, so I had firsthand interviews with right. this one guy. So he, he tells quite a story. I'd love to write that one someday, although I'm, I'm not sure I'm going to get to it. <laughs> it's, a very, his is a, it's a very complicated story with two, two Jewish men from New York City that you know, never met. Beside, you know, once they get in the Army together, then they become best friends in the Army, and they... They uh, they go through the war together, and they have some really amazing stories. And then they become business partners. They you know one guy marries the other guy's sister, and they live next door to each other their whole lives. Yeah, that's those those things like that. They're really I, I've had the I've had the pleasure of doing a couple of World War II interviews uh, over my writing career, and it's just it's just always always mind boggling. I mean everything. As we were saying before, everything just seems a little bit more heightened, and I don't know yeah. if I'm over-romanticizing it or if it's true. I mean, I don't know if you are or not. It's, I, 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 I like being around old people. I love right. seeing their stories. So uh, I, just, I just think every time you see some guy that's in his 90s or he's, he's you know, wearing that hat that says World War II vet, shake yeah, his hand. right. Oh, absolutely. I mean, it's, I can't even... 
I don't know. I can't even really wrap my head around it, but I will tell you, if you don't write that story, I call dibs. <laughs> dibs. You guys. Yeah, like I'm calling I'll dibs sh- on that. I'll so. share my manuscript with you so you can <laughs> see that you get the historical stuff. Fantastic. And uh, so then it was the second one fiction? The second book that I wrote was uh, called The Devil's Voice. Mm-hmm. I, I'll put that on top now. I don't know if you guys can if, it, if it's being recorded. Nice. So this is a uh, story that actually started when, it was, uh, when I was in college. I first started thinking about this story. So we'll go back a long time. Right. So the, the book takes place in the ni- early 1980s, and it follows a, uh, a young man who's going to college, and he's working in a uh, state hospital for the developmentally disabled. So it's a full spectrum of, of clients. Right. You've got from severely developmentally disabled to severely schizophrenic and everything in between. So and I, and it was based loosely on me, so I, I mean, I got some personal knowledge going on. So I'm a student assistant, college job, don't know anything about how to take care of you know anybody in this place, right? Green as you could possibly imagine. And within with the first couple of days on a residence is what they called where everybody lived. They throw me in a group room all by myself, and I'm like, I have no idea what I'm supposed to do. So I just let the, the, the guys do whatever they wanted to do. There was one guy in particular that really stood out amongst them all. He looked like the devil. And he escapes from the facility. Would be gone. No one knows how he does it. No one knows where he goes. He's gone for two, three days at a time. And he comes back. And he just shows up. He'll show up either outside the door waiting to get let in, or he'll be back inside the next, you know, three mornings later, he's in his bed. Wow. So I'm there for a week. And one of these escapes happens, and this place just goes absolutely nuts when this guy's gone. Uh huh. Because they're supposed to be taken care of. Right. And what if anybody comes looking for him? What, someone's looking for him. Or what if he doesn't ever come back? Right. No one knows where he's at. Or what if they find him in like a murder scene? Or a murder scene, which is what. <laughs> oh. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, so one night after he's back, I ask him. And I worked the, the night shift. I'd get off. You know, I, my last class was at two thirty. My shift started at three. I'd I'd race down the four hundred five freeway and I'd get to to the hospital and I'd work till eleven o'clock. And everybody else is sound asleep in bed except for me and this guy. And he's just hanging out. So I start talking to him. I said, "Where do you go? What do you do?" I just start peppering this guy with questions, and he's just staring at me, not saying a word. And all of a sudden, he just blurts out, "Because they tell me to." Oh, so I freaked me out at. 20-year-old college kid. I right. Someday I'm going to write the story about what this guy does. So that's how The Devil's Voice came about. Whoa. And do you, did you find that there was a difference between your approaches to the, to the two different fiction works? Cause one yeah, because that seems very different. Like that story and then researching World War II guys in a very real, you mm. know, non, that seems very, very, two very different things. Uh, boy, it's hard to answer that because... Uh, Completely different books, like, like you said. One of them was based on personal knowledge, so I was able to you know, pull in stuff that I experienced. Right. All my weird things that happened to me while I worked at this hospital, and there was lots of them. I can imagine. I was able to put those into the book. And then I was able to create characters from the people I worked with, who in many cases were crazier than the people we were taking care of. So I had <laughs> so much information in my head that it, once I started writing, it was just it just flowed out of me. And, when, and again, with this book... I knew the ending and I knew the beginning, you know, young guy starts working here, you know, 
and a murder takes place. So there's a murder and then there's the ending. And I knew, I knew how I was going to have them beginning and end. And then I kind of started working my way towards the end. And I would start write scenarios back towards the end of the book, right? Kind of put them off to the side and then I would connect them. Oh, that's interesting. That's like a, kind of like in a piecemeal way. Like I'm going to use this. Yes. Um, I know how it's going to go. I don't know where it fits right now, yeah. but I know it's going to fit yeah. at some Somewhere point. Somewhere it's going to fit in, and then you, right. and then you, you know then you're working with the timeline. This book takes place over basically six months, we'll say, give or take. Whereas the other book is a, is five years worth wow. of stuff. So the six months, you know, I had to I jumped time like the long hot summer drags on and nothing's right. happening type of a you know now you know a couple months have passed, but with with the other book, I mean, I had to kind of keep a timeline going. But still try to keep the reader interested while you're jumping months at a time. Right. Which I guess is how maybe that subplot kind of helps in those doldrums, kind of helps kind of like help you move from like, I always kind of describe if you're writing nonfiction, you have a skeleton, right? Because it's real stuff. You know what happened. And like you said, there's a beginning and an end. So there's like a head and there's arms and it's just bones. But it's, you know, our job as creative nonfiction people or historical fiction or whatever we want to call ourselves, it's our job to put the fl- the meat and the flesh and the eyes in and, and then make it, make it a thing. So yeah, I, I could see how um, using you'd have all those pieces because you have his story, his real life. You know that he was here, and then he was here, and then he was here. But you know, you you got to find some way to bring your reader with you and tell that story. So I could see why using a fictional subplot of of the mob guys and his brother's involvement and all those different things, how they may kind of be kind of the current under the wave to kind of move that forward. So yeah. Yeah, and it's the same thing when with the training because I made that all up. Right. There's no, I mean, there's records of where they went, but I, I make it all up. And then the boxing matches. You know, he continues to fight throughout the book. He's a boxer; he can't help himself. So, right. I mean, he he boxes. Like I said, he boxes Sugar Ray, mm-hmm. and then he ends up boxing for the second army. Kind of jump back to the glove slinger. He he leaves the twenty seventh infantry division. And he ends up joining the Second Armored Division. That's who he actually goes to war with. Mm-hmm. Was the Second Armored fighting in in Europe. He he actually becomes a boxer for the Second Armored Division, which is the pitcher. This is actually the man. Oh yeah, there's um. That's, actually that's cool. In the dark trunks. So inside of the book, there's a the, the actual cover sketch is is yeah. on the inside of the book. Um, and that's actually one of the other things we always like to talk about. So um, once you once you get something published, getting it out there is a is a whole other step. Um, and we like to talk about different ways that people promote their books and um, get them out there, like do talks, do signings. And so so what what was your first step? And again, what changed over the course of the three different uh, books? Well, the, the first book has not been published. It's still just as a manuscript. I'll eventually oh, right. publish that one. So. I had no idea what I was doing in terms of promoting when it came to the, the devil's voice, but uh, radio programs. I did a television uh, talk show out of Salisbury University. I've done probably six or seven book clubs, mm-hmm. a lot of local stuff. Um, you know, Florida, South Carolina, where I've got you know friends and family, um, and up in this area here, and then. A lot of people who worked at the hospital got involved in, the, in buying the book and promoting it in California. They were they loved it. 
Oh, were they cool. were they going through it like they said I who, me. who is me? Yeah, like were oh, they going through yes. like which I had one some is great me? Response. Oh man, you bring back such wonderful memories. I, I mean, a lot of this stuff is pretty cool that I talked about. So yeah, just that we did, and I, I you know, the friends I made, and uh, my wife actually worked at the hospital after I had left my one year student assistant tour. She became a a therapist there. So the there's couple main characters in this story, but one of the main characters is a female therapist that helps the student assistant. She becomes more of the main character as the story progresses, and that was based on my wife. Right. And her roommates. She had three roommates. They all shared a house. Now, did you meet there, or is it just a coincidence? Had you met elsewhere? We met elsewhere. Did you meet elsewhere before or after? Is it like, oh, you worked at that place? I worked at that place. Uh, Well, so I was saying how she had the three roommates. Right. Right. at the time, there were three girls and my wife, and one of the one of the ladies moved out, and my friend, a guy, moved in, and they were all happy to have a guy there to help protect them. And right. he said, "Oh, you're gonna you're gonna love it. I moved in with three hot chicks, and <laughs> we're having a party, so come." So that's how I met my wife. Oh, that's cool. That's cool. <laughs> Little love story, right? Yeah. There. yeah. She did, she wanted nothing to do with me that first party. That's for sure. <laughs> awesome. No, uh, do you have something? Oh. Well, the other the other thing I wanted to say was. Um, did you do any of the uh, any of the mob research? Or did you just pull from other fiction? And like, how do you how do you how do you make those kind of choices where like you you know you're going to dip into something that kind of has a rich history of like the fixed fight, right? And so, how do you let other things you've read or seen or whatever affect you? And how do you not let it affect you? Like, how do you make that choice? Well. Wh- one of, one of the attributes I have, uh, I hear a story, I remember it forever. Right. I, mean, I, I hear stories constantly, and I'm constantly thinking what would be, a, but that'd make a great book. That'd make a great book. I hear them all the time. Mm-hmm. So if I see something that I'm intrigued by, and I can, I can see the authenticity of it. Like The Cinderella Man was a well-made movie. Right. Very, very authentic, I thought. So when you think about fight fixing, I mean, it was common knowledge. That, right. You know, there was a lot of shenanigans that I mean, went on back then. And the mob was prolific, and we were in depression. We were only a few years past prohibition. So part of the, the storyline, which is very – it's just a small subplot. The, the mob scenes are gone after, what, fourth chapter, I think. Oh, oh I see. So it, it, that runs its course quickly, but it's a, it was a means to get my guy out, out of, of town and into the army without just saying he was patriotic. Right. But uh, I have these guys, the three mob guys, we call them the mm-hmm. Irish trio. They made their money by running Canadian liquor, which, you know, Syracuse was a hub. Yeah, no, absolutely. Coming down from the north. So that's how I have make their money, and they were, you know, fixing fights, and they, they wanted their guy to win. And the, the true story behind that original boxing match was the Hank Heppy, the the real man's name, he did win that match against a guy that he was not supposed to beat. And it, just a little bit of research that I did on it, it almost made me think that he wasn't supposed to win that fight. And one of the reasons why I say that was because they scheduled a rematch between Hank Heppy and the guy's name was Marion, Benny Marion, two weeks after the, the Tournament of Champions was over. He's back up in Syracuse fighting the same guy. Really? And I was like... That just seems really, really, really weird that they would schedule a fight, the same two guys, the guy that everybody thought was supposed to win the welterweight title. 
Right, like that, making he, him earn it again, or do you think that you know? I, I was intrigued to by change that. the odds. That, that, but seeing that bit of research that I did, that was where I oh, that was the first thought of fight fixing that came into my mind. He wasn't supposed to win that fight. And the way I, when I read the, the newspaper articles about it, it was registering a surprise. Yeah, the the fight fans couldn't believe the outcome. Yeah, that does. Yeah, once you start hearing like he's not supposed to win, like you're like, well, what does that even mean? So yeah. I can see how that seed, you know, the seed was planted. The seed, and then it Absolutely. germinates. Yeah, totally. And, and when he then he goes back up to fight the exact same guy two weeks after the tournament is over. It's like, hmm. hmm. Yeah, fishy. I have him win. Best amateur fight they've ever seen. Right. <laughs> but it, it, the, the reality of it was is that he goes back up there and he loses. He gets beat by Benny Marion. Ah. Who turns pro uh, the following year? Benny Mar- Marion does win the welterweight title in 1941 out of Central New York, and then he turns pro directly after. And he has a he has a fairly successful boxing career until uh, he, I did research on him. Also, he sure. he gets injured outside of the ring, and he, he hurts his leg badly in, in a fall. And Hort, he was he moved west, still boxing, and he was he was bucked off of a horse. Ah. Well, that serves you right. Fix <laughs> a fight. Sure, 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 you're right. Being a fight fixer. All right. Well, we're coming to the end here now. I just want to remind everybody who is listening that um, we love fan mail. So if you send us uh, emails, we will send you haikus and limericks. Um, we, we just sent out our, our latest two postcards, and we send them via post mail. So you'll get them like it's 1941. The post mail will come. He'll be wearing something spiffy. He'll knock on your door, and he'll hand you over to, um, well, one... Postcard. One postcard with two with two works of poet, poetical art on them. We call it poetical. Um, and of course, don't forget to please uh, like and subscribe if you if you uh, are listening on iTunes. Please rate us on iTunes so people other people can find us. It makes it easier for us to find us if we have a good rating. If you don't like the show, feel free not to rate us on uh, iTunes. Yeah, and that email. If you want to get a haiku and a limerick on a postcard in the actual mail, you can send that email to pod. Podcast at saltwatermedia.com. Very cool. And now, Stephanie, this is the part of the show where you thank the guest. Well, thank you very much, Chris. Thank you for coming on. It was awesome. I had a great time. So What's Your Story was recorded at Saltwater Media, an indie book publisher in Berlin, Maryland. Want to hear more? Visit www.saltwatermedia.com and subscribe to the podcast on iTunes or on Stitcher. Want other people to hear more? Give us a great review there. Tell your story.